Uh, I have a very simple message for you today on this Mother's Day. It comes from Deuteronomy chapter 6, if you want to find that in your Bibles. Um, It's Deuteronomy chapter 6. We'll read verses 4 through 9. What I want to share with you from Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9 is a truth, a command, and an application of that truth and that command. And this isn't only for moms. This is for all of us. But when we get to the application part, I think you'll find that it's especially important for parents, uh, including moms. Let's read it together. If you would, if you're able to, I'll invite you to stand with me and we'll read Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 9. Verse 4 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. Please help us to see it clearly and hear it clearly and understand it and respond to it. And may all your people be blessed this morning for being here, especially our mothers. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for standing. You may be seated. Now, before I tell you about the truth that's in this passage, I have a challenge for our children who are in here who are not usually in here. Okay? Where are my children who are in here right now that are not usually in here? Let me see. I see one hiding over there. A couple maybe here, over there. Okay. And mine in the restroom. Okay, he's with us in spirit. Okay, here's what I'd like for you kids to do. If you can, if your parents or someone around you has a scrap sheet of paper, and if you have a pencil or a pen, I want you to try to draw a really good picture of something that you hear me say or something that you see. So if you don't want to listen to me, try to draw a picture of me or something, and if it's really good, if I can tell you really worked hard on it, I'm going to post it on the bulletin board out there and on the church website, okay? So your job is to draw a really good picture of something that you hear or see during this service. Adults, I will not accept submissions from you, okay? So we'll see how that goes. So let me tell you first, I want to point your attention first to verse 4, and I want you to see the truth that God has for us today. Did you see it when we first read it? Let's read verse 4 again. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. The Lord is how many? One. The Lord is one. I was reading in preparation for my sermon a commentary, a gentleman named Clark. I actually don't know his first name. That's his last name. Maybe his first name's Clark. Clark Clark wrote, These words in verse 4, may be variously rendered into English, but almost all possible verbal varieties in this translation amount to the same sense. You need a translator to understand that sentence, really. What he's saying is, from the Hebrew, you could translate these original words a lot of different ways, really. But all the different variations and word combinations amount to about the same thing. 
So he gives a list of different ways you can arrange the original Hebrew words and what they would say in English. One, Israel, here, Jehovah, our God, is one Jehovah. Another option, Jehovah is our God, Jehovah is one. Another option, Jehovah is our God, Jehovah alone. Another one, Jehovah is our God, Jehovah who is one. And one last one, Jehovah who is our God is the one being. So we get the idea. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. Now this may not seem immediately important to you, but it is. See, the original audience came from a polytheistic, they were, they were surrounded by polytheism, which is the worship of many different gods. Okay, now I know that you don't go home and bow to many different wooden idols or anything like that, but I would suggest that we are a polytheistic culture. It's just a lot more subtle, a lot more covert, because we don't call them gods and we don't call it worship. See, back then they, they, they bowed to real things that you could see, and now we bow with our time and our energy and our money to many different gods. Now, I've heard it said that many folks in churches are functional atheists, which means, yes, we come on Sunday, but we actually live as though there is no God. I think it might be more accurate to say that many of us are functional polytheists, and we live our lives for many different lowercase g gods through the week, whether it's our work or our families or even our church can be a false god. You know, our loved ones, our friends, our money, our power, our comfort, our leisure, whatever it may be, we need to be reminded this morning of this foundational truth. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. Since there is one God, this should be the great unifying principle in our lives. We should start with God and then work to understand everything else. It's the most important factor in all of reality. The Lord our God is one, and he has a command for us. So the truth is that God is one. The command is in verse 5. Look at it with me. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all of your soul. And all of your might. Easy. There's your command. Go do it. This is a a hard command. This is all-encompassing. It's not just that he wants us to obey him. That, in a sense, might be easier. He doesn't just want us to identify ourselves with him. He doesn't just want us to acknowledge him. He wants us to love him. And not just love him. Love him with our entirety, our whole heart, our whole soul, our whole might. Now, to think about this more clearly, think about children. Some of you are parents, some of your kids are sitting here right now. What do you really want from them? If they obey you really, really well, but don't love you, does that satisfy you as a parent? If you're not a parent, do you think that would satisfy you? 
If your kids have no real affection for you or, or regard for you, but they obey every word you say. Well, no, I mean, you might as well get a robot. It would be nice if they loved us and obeyed us. That, that would be ideal. But if you had to take one or the other, you won't love. Or if your children just acknowledged you or identified with you, they, they're your children in the sense that they have your last name, period. That falls so far short of what you're after. You want their hearts, you want their souls, you want their might. That's what God wants from us as his children. So, the heart equals the mind, the will, the desires, the motives. Your heart is your your thinking, your feeling, your motivations. The soul is your very life, your very being. The strength is literally your muchness. It's it's what you have. It's It's your strength. It's your energy. It's your resources. It's your possessions. It's your time. God wants all of that. All. How much of it? All. That's right. All. It's everything that is in you and everything that you're into needs to be absorbed into your love for God. That's what he's after. This means that there would be no love left in your heart or your soul or your strength for anything else. Let that sink in for a minute. That word all is really extreme. If I give you all of my money, that means I have no more money for anything else. It is all gone to you. The Bible says God's like a consuming fire. He, he consumes you. Either that or not at all. It's all or nothing with our God. So loving him this way means that all incompatible loves just... Just dissolve. You can't love God with all of your heart while loving things that go against God. And it means that all compatible loves get absorbed into that love. And and that's really where, like, familial love belongs. Like, your, your love for each other as the church family, as the biological family, it's, it's best when it's an expression of your love for God. It's meant to be a part of your love for God. You understand? You see the logic of how that works? I fear that I didn't explain that very clearly. If your all is loving God, you have nothing else left to love anything else. So if you're going to love anything else, it has to be brought into your love for God. And then it's really love. Now, and you've seen this lived out. You've seen people try to love people without it having anything to do with their love for God. And it, it goes badly. You end up worshiping this person that you love, rather than really loving them. You end up fearing them. If their disposition towards you changes, you, you fall apart. Because they're functionally, they're your gods. You know, the thought of... And this, yeah, I'm not going to go down that route. Never mind. I, when, I, when I stray from my notes, it gets dangerous quickly. I'm going to go back to my notes. So God is one, and his big, great command, which we talk about all the time, is that we love him with all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our might. Okay, now before we get to the application, this is a great place to remind ourselves of the gospel. 
Because if you're like me at this point, you're thinking, I don't think I love God like that. I don't think my love for him is that pure and all-encompassing. Well, I have good news for you. That's why he sent Jesus. So he doesn't say to you, love me with your everything or else. He says to you, because you have failed to love me with your everything, I have made a way for you. I have come in the form of Jesus Christ to love the way you should have loved. If you'll accept his sacrifice on your behalf, his payment for your failure... I'll forgive you and I'll give you a new heart with new desires that can grow into this sort of love. So don't feel condemned at your failure to love like this. Feel hopeful and turn to Jesus. And that brings us to our final point, the application. Look with me at verses 7 through 9. You shall teach them all of his commandments, especially this one about loving the Lord. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. I think it's interesting to note in this pivotal passage of Scripture that the very first application God gives specifically is to parents. I don't think we should breeze past that. Parents are vitally integrated into God's plan. Parents are vital for God's purposes and plan for his people. Now just to think hypothetically with me for a minute... If you were God, how would you go about it? You, you want your people to know that you are the one God. You want them to love you with all their heart, soul, and might. But you know that every generation, it's a new group of people. You know, sort of the same thing we deal with at, at the church. Every year, it's a new board. It's a new BCE. It's a new, how, how do you ensure that each new generation is going to get with the program? How would you do it if you were God? You also know the sinful hearts of people that they're going to stray and they're going to worship other gods. What would your plan be? Would you try to get it down in like a, a manual? Well, he sort of did that. But does that always work? No, you see, God devised this plan to have these family units. And then as you grow up, most folks will then produce another family unit. And with each generation, the parents are given the task of diligently teaching their children these truths about God being the one God and this command that we're to love him with our, all of our being. So like I've said before, in terms of children's programs within the church, God has given us the children's program, and it's called parents. Now, there is absolutely a place for children's programming like we have Sunday school, etc. We'll talk about that in a minute. But I need us to feel the weight of the task of parents. It is huge. Parents are the gatekeepers for the next generation if they're going to worship God or not. And you know, it didn't have to be that way. God's really creative. You know, new people could have come about in a different way other than parents. You know, we could, we could grow on trees, like fruit. 
I know it sounds bizarre, but is it any more bizarre than hatching a person out of our bodies? We could grow in trees like fruit or out of the ground like plants. I mean, we could. There could be like a queen mother that just birthed like hundreds of babies every year and that's it. It could, you know, there are creatures that do that. I know these are bizarre Mother's Day meditations. Did any of your Mother's Day cards have that written on the inside? (laughs) Hey, we could have sprouted from trees. Happy Mother's Day. Love your son. My point is just for you guys to remember that this is very purposefully designed the way it is. It's It's by no accident. And the purpose is more than just biological, it's spiritual. Parents are the gatekeepers of their children's faith in God or their idolatry. And church will always be supplemental to that. You know, and it's just a fact. It's not whether we want church to be supplemental to the parents or not. The church is supplemental to the parents. Now, there's lots of situations where kids do not have godly parents. There's situations where kids don't even have parents. And the church is needed in those situations. But it is very difficult, anyone who's worked with kids, to overcome the influence of the parents, whether it's good or bad. Even if the parents are absent, their very absence is uh, incredibly influential in the child's life. So, so we need to think clearly about children's ministry, especially as we're about to kind of revamp things starting in June. It's extremely important. And it's an extremely important supplement to what godly parents are already doing. And it's even more important to situations where kids don't have godly parents. But it can never replace the parent's influence. And it was never meant to. This is God's way. This is God's design. And it's a, it's a marvelous task to be able to do as parents. So he gives us a lot of specific ways to go about this. That's what's helpful. God isn't all about just theory. He gives you practical advice. So we're going to very quickly look at the, the, the ways that he tells parents to teach their kids. This is where it gets more specific to parents. Uh, but the rest of you have to listen anyway. You can draw a picture of it if you want to. So verse 6, look with me at the first way to go about it. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. So the first practical advice, parents, your example. Your example is key to teaching your children to worship the one true God. I came across another quote I'd like to read to you. This was a, um, a gentleman who wrote a whole book on this. You know, children are fantastic hypocrisy detectors. They know, especially in their parents, they know when we're not being genuine. They see us. They see the reality. So listen to his quote. Often, so often, A child sees behind the religious garb of his parents and finds what is really precious to them. He sees patterns of heart which lure them toward a pursuit of wealth, leisure, athletics, entertainment, television, shopping, and religious busyness. A child can easily see when these things are more exciting to his parents than devotion to Christ Jesus. When this proves to be be the case, a child will embrace those same affections to the detriment of his own soul. However, when children see parents who pant after God, parents who are constantly pouring over the scriptures and going to God in prayer about everything, 
parents who have proper balance between enjoying legitimate recreation and seeking to conform to everything that would bring God glory. Their children can be expected to adopt that same balance. And here's the big, if you phased out during my reading, listen to this last word. Whatever or whoever is precious to you, the same will be precious to your children. Whatever or whoever is precious to you, the same will be precious to your children. See, it's not that we parents need to be examples for our kids. It's that we parents are examples for our kids. Regardless of what we're worshiping and what we're doing, we are always examples for our kids. And they will become little versions of us, most likely. And this really goes for all of us. You know, the kids in here now don't just see their parents. They see all of us. So step number one in trying to be obedient to God's design as parents and as older generations in the church is to mind our example. Number two, our teaching. Look in verse seven. You shall teach them diligently to your children and talk of them when you sit in your house And when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Just like we parents are examples, we are teachers. Parenting is a teaching-intensive role. And God gets even more practical. He tells us specific settings in which we might be able to leverage as opportunities to teach our children. When you sit in your house, what does your time in your home teach your children? Are you ever sitting in your house with the kids? I mean, does this even happen anymore? (laughs) I remember when I was a kid, there was a lot of sitting around. And man, I feel like we are just going just all day, every day, we get up, we're already late for everything. It doesn't seem to me there's a lot of sitting in the house. And you know, maybe, maybe this is a place to start. Maybe all the multitasking, uh, maybe the multitasking death race to the finish line of accomplishing as much and being a part of as much as humanly possible, maybe that's actually not good for our families. Maybe we need some more time sitting in the house together so we can talk. Um, another opportunity, when you walk by the way, Now, I doubt that you walk too many places, but we have cars now, and we have a lot of commuting time with our families. Now, I know not everybody in here has young kids. I'm aware of that, but this is God's word. Hang with me. So what does your commuting time with your children or your grandchildren teach them? How can you use that time to teach them diligently? Is there... Something you need to discuss is there um, better music that would be more beneficial, uh, book on CD for kids. I don't know. There's, there's ways to make use of it. Uh, one thing, you know, I hesitate to give any examples of my own practice because I am tremendously, a, a tremendous failure in these things. You know, but we try. And you know, I, won't, I won't tell you anything that's not true because my boy's sitting right there and I'm sure he's hanging on my every word and he'll catch it. But, but one thing that I've, I've seen to be a good opportunity is when I drop him off for, at school to just pray with him before he goes in. And that's become kind of, kind of a rhythm. And it's a little thing. 
But it's those little things that add up. Another opportunity, when you lie down, what does your bedtime ritual teach your kids? Bedtime is a really rich time. And I wish I leveraged our bedtimes better than I do. And, and this is a reminder to me to do so. Now, I've told you before, when I was really focused on this, our bedtime routine was getting to where like, we'd have to start it like noon, right after lunch, so we'd have time for it all. It was like, we're going to play a board game, we're going to sing a song, we're going to pray, we're going to read five books and do all these things, bath. Um, you know, you do what you can do, but I'll tell you why bedtime's a good opportunity with your children, especially younger ones. They don't want to go to bed. So they will talk to you forever if it means that you're not going to turn the light out and leave them in there and they're going to have to go to sleep. And it's really a great opportunity. Um, you know, unfortunately, if you're like me, you're already tired. And while they're wanting to not go to bed, you're wanting very badly to go to bed. And, but that is a good opportunity for us to talk with them and teach them and hear about what's going on in their lives and apply scripture to that. And, um, so consider the bedtime ritual. Another one, when you rise, what does your morning routine teach your children? Again, often, um, if you're like me and us, it's probably, it teaches them that time is short and we're late. <laughs> it teaches them that we should have gotten up an hour earlier, but we never do. Maybe there's a way to plan better. You know, some people who are really on top of it, I have heard, have morning devotions together around the breakfast table. Wouldn't that be amazing? <laughs> it's doable. People do it. Not saying that we do it, but maybe it's something to strive toward. Okay, one last one. On your hands and your homes. He, he actually talks about posting scripture. So the question here is, what does even your, your decor teach your children? Even just visually having it around is helpful and important. Now, one thing should stand out to you as we look at all these little practical examples. It all requires a significant amount of time. And it means that you've got to make parenting a top-notch priority. Above a lot of other very loud, very pressing priorities and opportunities. But it means that we need unhurried time with our kids or with your grandkids. So for me, and maybe for many of you, I feel like the schedule may be the first stop in trying to be obedient to this word. Just figuring out how we can have more time. Now, I know many of you who do not have kids in the home anymore, you know, maybe just wondering why must I even hear all this? Or you know, maybe you have regrets, I don't know. You can help those of us who do have children in the home in a couple of ways. Okay, the first one that comes to my mind is please pray for us. You who have had kids, remember that it's no, it's no easy task. Just keeping them alive takes a lot of energy. And then, to, and then to dynamically be discipling them, you almost have to be superhuman. You know, thankfully, we are given supernatural power through the word and the gospel and the Holy Spirit. But pray for those of us who have young kids. Pray for our kids. Man, what, if we were a church where we could just count on the fact that our adults prayed for all of our children, that alone would just be amazing. Another way you can help is if, if you see our kids running crazy through the halls, uh, try not to judge us too harshly. We're doing our best. Um, maybe that should trigger the prayer. 
Just right then, you see, you know, a Broadway kid fly by. Father, please bless Matt and Meredith and help them. Remember your example for our kids as the church. That's another way that you can help us. Uh, A third way you can help us is if you have any power over this, and this may not really apply to many of you, be mindful of how much parents need time with their kids. And that really comes into play as we plan things as a church too. You know, parents, are, we're starved for time. We've got so much we're trying to do. And a lot of that's self-imposed. But just be mindful of the parenting task in, in this day and age, you know, it, with iPhones and screens everywhere and practices every half hour. It's a lot going on. Be mindful of us. Pray for us. Help us where you can. Um, The big idea, there is only one God. He is the ultimate thing that matters. And he has commanded us to love him with our whole heart, soul, and might. And he desperately wants us to ensure that future generations know these things. And parents are on the front lines of that task. So right now, let's pause and pray for all parents and all of our kids together. Father, thank you for Jesus Christ and that you forgive us for our failures in these things and that your gospel is more powerful than our ability to mess up our kids and that you enable us to do really good things for our kids and for the future generations. Please help us to feel the gloriousness of this task of being mothers and fathers and grandmothers and grandfathers and all the different variants of parenting. Please humble us in the face of this awesome privilege that you've given us. Please help us. And I pray for our next generation, the kids that we are raising. Lord, please bless them. Please nourish them. Please protect them from their own sin, from this world that's set against them and our enemy that prowls around like a lion. Please protect them. I pray that all of our little ones would grow up straight and strong, knowing who you are as the one true God. I pray that all of our little ones would grow up to love you with their whole heart, their whole soul, their whole might. May the next generation be mightier, more faithful, more trusting than this one. In Jesus' name, amen.